Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Here's the second part of the interview where Horace Dedu and I discuss Apple in China and his thoughts on whether Apple is truly entering the luxury market. Please enjoy. But I want to sort of change the conversation to Apple into China. Mm-hmm. I've seen from your blog on, I think you recently did a plot of Apple's kind of revenue share based on different geographies. And Apple's growth mm-hmm. in greater China in the last quarter is about to exceed Europe, I think. And accelerating. Mm-hmm. It has towards, already, yes. Yeah, yes. it has already. In fact, um, now accelerating towards the US market. And, and the fact is that if you look at Apple's quarterly earnings, it's very dependent on iPhone and with the rest of the products like the iPad, they are just forming only the 20% where I think 80% of the revenues are coming from the iPhone itself. Just as an existential question, do you foresee Apple's growth will be very dependent on China in the next decade? Or are there still enough growth opportunities within the US and European market that if, because if the iPhone were to start failing, it will also trickle down to the geographies, which make their position yeah. very difficult. Right. So broadly speaking, I, I think it's not just before the regional story. Just mm. let's be clear that Apple doesn't make money just because they're able to execute on a regional or yep. a That's product right. strategy. They, they didn't get into, they were suboptimal every step of the way. <laughs> they, mm. If they were optimal on that, they would have been much more like Samsung in that they would have been selling to 500 mobile operators within six months of of the iPhone launch. No, it took years, five years, to even get the United States to have all the operators carrying the phone because it's not even the geography that matters is that they go through mobile operators and there are 800 mobile operators and and for five years at least they weren't even in 25% of the global market given the, if you count that, that distribution channel. So Apple was by no means in any hurry during those first five years when they were increasing their, their number of operators, and they used to tell us that figure, and then they got to something like 250 or 300, and they stopped reporting. And I think they almost like stopped adding operators at that stage. They said, we have the best operators with us now. Mm. And the China Mobile was the only one that was, was not there that was significant in size, and Docomo as well. But notice also, when we go back to that point just a little bit, Verizon was the largest mobile operator. It was the last in the U.S. to get the iPhone. China Mobile, the largest mobile operator in the world, was the last mobile operator to get the iPhone. Docomo, the largest mobile operator in Japan, was the last mobile operator to get the iPhone in Japan. Mm-hmm. And as a result, their market share really zoomed afterwards. So in other, in other words, they actually got into a relationship with the most important uh, distributor of their product at the end of the product life cycle almost. But I would say that's not the end. That's actually the middle of their product cycle because now they're in, a, they're in another game where they're trying to expand geographically. Firstly, it was about getting mobile operators within the geographies they chose, and now they need to choose new geographies. This is a very long cycle, which is, again, we go back to timing. The question of uh, how long does it take? We've been at this uh, for eight years, which is, sounds like a long time, 
but it's actually a very short time when you look at the adoption of other technologies like you know automobiles took 70 years even in the United States washing machines uh, took 30 years and, and you, you look at some basic core technologies that diffused into an economy and they were all much much longer the personal computer took much longer than the smartphone and so I illustrate this in my talks I, I, I show the diffusion curves and I, I go back a hundred years and we look at over mm. 20 of them and then we say wow so so are you saying is there an acceleration generally there's a broad acceleration happening but at the same time there's some things which still take a long time so in that sense on a global basis it's still early days it's probably iPhone I would say it's about 30 percent of the way towards what I would call saturation globally uh, and that the measure the measure of saturation is not you know how many of the wealthy people in the wealthy countries got it but rather how many people, how many operators, how many countries, how many every other measure you want to have of diffusion of, of a technology. And there are plenty of places in the world today that still cannot buy an iPhone, even if they tried. There are no, I think Pakistan doesn't, doesn't have any mobile operators that carry the iPhone. So anyone in any Pakistani or Bangladeshi or perhaps Mongolia, I don't know all these countries, there are many of them. I only looked at this about a year ago. Many of these countries which have populations of tens of millions of people do not have distribution for the iPhone, so it has to come in through suboptimal ways. And so Apple has not been about optimization. And by the way, those countries probably have a hundred distributors for Samsung Galaxy. They probably have distribution for Nokia and they have distribution for Sony. I'm not just picking on Samsung, but I'm just saying that uh, the way the mobile business works is that you you worry about distribution first, then you worry about the end user uh, second. In the case of Apple, they're like, we want to care about the product, we want to care about the users, we want to, we want to sell them ideally the phones through our stores. And if the law doesn't permit us to build stores, then sorry, we're not going to sell your phones. And that's what the case of India. India, a billion people, and the laws there do not permit Apple to establish their own stores and so what do they do well because they're they're, they're an integrated company they say well we can't get people to to value our product fully and, and have that experience with it and have the direct face-to-face -face, look me in the eye kind of experience with the salesperson talking to you explaining the product to me then sorry no iPhone for you you know that that's the that's the situation so so anyway back to China the thing is this Tim Cook said this actually two quarters ago, he said, I've been studying China for 30 years. You know, this is in, in an hours-long conversation with analysts that nobody listens to. And he just said that, like, offhand. 30 years! It's taken him 30 years to understand how to be successful in China, and now you see the result of that effort, right? It's, it, it might take another 30 years for them to understand how to be successful in India, which is another billion people. And so, these civilizations are thousands of years old. 30 years is nothing. So for a company like Apple, which has the long-term horizon and the thinking long-term, they will simply wait until everything is the way they needed to be successful with that message. Hmm. A few other data points. Apple products are integrated, which means they work best when you have other Apple products. But not, not only that, but they also depend on an ecosystem like music store, App Store, you have uh, iCloud, you have backup into the cloud essentially, you have your music and your photos in the cloud, which is an Apple experience end-to-end, -end, right? That is what they want. And so what that means, that means the user typically has to have a credit card, typically has to have the willingness to purchase these products and so the budget and the, and the income and, and so on. So if you try to then parachute the iPhone, which seems like a commodity because it is you know, 
visually looks the same as as another, uh, let's say, uh, Android phone, and yet it has around it all of these other dependencies which the local market does not necessarily support. So if you don't have a respect for uh, for intellectual property, if you don't have a banking system where credit cards are an option, where you don't have bandwidth. There was a time when uh, the iPhone was already, I think, in iPhone 4, and people were saying that, look, the iPhone 4 is not selling one in, well at all in India. And India didn't even have 3G network at the time. Yep, and there right. were no 3G. And, and so people... So here's a, a, an iPhone 3G, actually, which, quote-unquote, was a flop in India. But it, the, the phone has no value in that country without a data network. And so, you know, even a, a, a year or two later, when you had already going more, more towards later generation network technologies, you still didn't have the, the bandwidth, the mobile bandwidth to make advantage, take advantage of it. So, again, it has to match the local infrastructure and the local norms and everything else. And so, in some ways, you can try to make your product adaptable to the local norms, like have dual SIMs in it and have who knows what other features are exciting in the local culture, but rather you can wait for the world to come to where you are with your product. Mm -hmm. And so, in in that sense, what Apple's willing to do is wait. In that, many times it's critical. It, it, it's criticized for it and people will say, look, you're missing. You're, you're, you're blowing it. You're destroying value doing this. And they could be right, but Apple isn't in it for optimization. Those answers would be yes if you wanted to optimize the business. But they actually make this compromise, and that goes back to this operating logic, this algorithm of the firm that says we're not particularly concerned about being optimal. We just feel like something feels good or it's not about the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, back to China. <laughs> so here's where we are. China has finally absorbed, is able to absorb the product because it has 3G. It has mobile operators that agree to Apple's terms. It has enough stores and they're building many, many more. It has reached a certain respect for intellectual property. It has an indigenous culture of app developers. It has, therefore, a, a set of apps that are well designed for the local local economy. So you have the services, the infrastructure, the deal making, the culture. All of these are starting to synchronize. And the product, the iPhone, is the last piece in that puzzle that finally drops in and it fits. It fits in the jigsaw puzzle and boom, you have the picture. Mm. That's what makes this story then resonate. And so when, when, and then they have the timing right. They would launch the product so that it was available at Chinese New Year, as, which is the buying season for things like that. So if you launch a Galaxy S6 and you're launching it after Chinese New Year, well, how do you expect to get the maximum bang for that, for that release? Here is actually Samsung, the most optimized company in the planet, sub-optimized for China. And so, again, you work on these things over a long time, you get it just right, That's follow this logic and you see the result. And it's not about being vulnerable that, that the pro... No, the, every day, the decision process driven by the algorithm is like around these things, these questions, you know, is this the right experience? Is, are we, we doing the right thing? And, and it comes together once in a while. And then you have this, this supernova of growth. Everybody says that it's tactical or they've made the deals or it's political or it's some sort of like trick. No, there's no trick. It's just a lot of work. So that's when it comes together, and I think that's the untold story of China. And by the way, Japan, similar story, because it would have also taken 30 years to get 
Japan and, and the culture there to accept the iPhone. Yeah, I actually thought that the iPhone took a pretty quick time to get accepted in Japan and it actually forced NTT Docomo to just basically yeah, have to quick adopt it in three, the end. three years, I would say. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, you remember the stories and th there was a lot of criticism for these initial bloggers who are saying that the iPhone is a flop in Japan. They started saying that and when you did look at the iPhone versus what was available in the market at the time, let's say in 2008, it would have seemed like this product could never make it here. Mm. It could never make it because uh, Japan Japanese were crazy about emoji, they were crazy about keyboards, they were crazy about something to do with their, you know, uh, internet websites being done a certain way, and you know, or iMode or whatever it was, maybe iMode already was gone by then, but there were, you know, mobile payments, mobile television that everybody was watching, ebooks that were built in a certain way to run on certain devices, and I think those services still exist, so you have data services, you have entertainment services, you have all these things that were built in this Galapagos way, right, this mm -hmm. isolated kingdom that was Japan culture and the local operators, the local uh, device makers were collaborating to make that experience for it. And those, those experiences didn't even exist in, the, in Western countries. And here comes this phone, which comes into Japan, not complying with any of those norms. And everybody, every analyst would say, well, you have to comply. You have to make emojis. You have to make uh, mobile payments. You have to make mobile TV. There's no other way. Every single customer we ask says, this is what I use every day. You have to comply. And yet, it didn't comply. It waited and waited and waited. And it was, I think it was accepted, firstly, because what they did have was coolness. It had the certain Apple charm, Apple beauty, and many people bought it for that purpose, and they were frustrated that it didn't do the things that they that their regular phone would do. But over time, the services would build, be built on iOS, or or there would be hybrids or things that were worked out so that the product actually fitted well into their culture. And so what I'm saying is that it's it's this chicken and egg. You you wait and wait, and you also do the deal with Docomo and do do every other thing to make it possible as a commercial success. But there's this cultural fit, there's this conforming to norms. I think, yes, in relative to India, it's going very quickly. But even relative to China, it's gone very quickly. But it was by no means instantaneous. It's kind of the timing is pretty good, even the way when they introduced the iPhone 6 Plus, because the, the biggest criticism was about the larger screen phones that you will work in Asia. And when they introduced it suddenly surges the entire market. So it's kind of like they have a strategy in terms of picking yeah. when the right timing for the launch. And the, I, I think the, to me, the, the plus is, is one of these adaptations that Apple did do to make the products more attractive in those markets. Because a plus is still, my understanding is not that attractive in, in the US or Europe. It is still too big, and I, I, I did my own experiment, I bought one, I tried it for a while, I found it too big and uncomfortable to carry every day, I then passed it to a friend of mine to try it, he couldn't de deal with it, and it ended up going through five different people, mm. and the last person to finally get it actually was one of the ones that I initially still, and he took it because he just said, well, I haven't got any other phone. It was compromise for him to go to to that phone. So the the, the point is that uh, that's my very small sample. But yeah. generally, the, the probably twenty percent of buyers are buying it in in in, the, in Western markets. But I'm sure that it's much more popular in Asia. And the differences are nothing to do 
with here's a, this is where we, we have to step a little bit the jobs to be done jobs to be done research is understanding the context of purchases and the typical uses people have it's not quite use cases but it's also the psychology of ownership and behavior and so on and so on it's a long long story there are several shows i did on this topic but the bottom line is that there are different jobs in asia than, than in, in western countries and there's also different so for example using the phone to read while you're on the commute on the, on the public transportation system so you're not dri- you're not driving as much you're you're also standing much more so you have the situation where that phone actually is very convenient and the, the issue of putting it in your pocket is less of an issue because people tend to have a, either a bag or some some other jacket that they wear that is actually a place where you can put the large phone just so clothing styles commuting patterns, those types of media, that things are not, if you're not using a Latin language and you're using large characters, it actually might make sense to lay things out differently. And that means that your pages and your reading and everything else is actually much more comfortable in a two-dimensional grid uh, afforded by. I mean, here, here's just going on, on this language for a bit. Yeah. It's been pointed out to me that Google doesn't do well. In fact, no, no sort of algorithms for search do well in, in countries which use Chinese alphabet. And the reason is that the layout of pages and the, and the flow of information is very much a st- structurally different. It's not a, a narrative which goes you know, essentially as a serialized line of, of words, but rather things are just put in a very, they're designed around a two-dimensional grid. And you, you see that in, you know, when you go to Japan and just look up and see how signs are built, how newspapers are designed, how, you know, every piece of paper is, has, has a, a beautiful two, two-dimensional architecture to it. This is, allows for the inference engines for search need to therefore be two-dimensional, not just one-dimensional. And that means that you have to rethink a lot of your algorithms. And uh, But that also means that the visual display of information onto a screen is very dependent on the screen size, much more so, I think, in those cultures than, than in Western ones. This is where the devil's in the details. You have to really figure these things out and build your product around, or and that's what I think the large screen was all about. In fact, for the Asian user, we actually treat the smartphone more like a personal computer as compared to personal computers, the the laptops and the the PCs. So actually, the the large screen is also for our work purposes, not as much as if you are in the US or in Europe. That's exactly right too. And so, it, it, you have to understand the, these reasons why. Why is that different? How is this? So one issue and the decision to make the phone the size it was for many many years, which was four inches or less, is that. That is the size of the human hand. Mm. That is the, the, remember that this was, and it was Steve Jobs who said, look, if we can't use it with one hand, then it's no longer a phone. It's an iPad or, or it's something else. It's a PC, it's something. So in fact, when I was a Nokia, that was the same thing. We had a clear dividing line between one-handed and two-handed devices. A one-handed phone was, was expected to be used on all of its functionality with one hand. A two-handed device was more flexible, but it usually sold in like one-tenth the, vo- the volumes of the one-handed phone. Mm. And so the, the reason was it was cumbersome. People had to take it out, and there was a big ceremony to make it use. And you remember those phones were actually usually, they opened up, and they had a full-size or a mini, mini keyboard, and they have completely different design and uh, an operating system and all these other things that allowed the two-handed, quote, productivity device. And... Uh, also, BlackBerry kind of was innovative because it was it was almost one-handed enough, and you could be used in as a phone with one hand, but you could still use it with two hands to to, to type. And so these are details about usability and the compromises you make and the decisions you make based on uh, some fundamental. Like if you say 
it's a one-headed phone then you make these compromises and you might you might end up missing out on a huge opportunity in Asia so that's because Asian maybe they don't care so much about it being one-handed because they're not in a situation where they have you know a, a big drink in the other hand you know or whatever it is <laughs> that limits people's ability to do work with two hands in European and, and and Western markets you think one hand is on the steering wheel when you're in the car mm. one hand is carrying something uh, or or maybe is engaged in in holding on to something it usually you don't have both hands free and that's why that's why the usability of two-handed devices is considered suboptimal mm. and that's what I want to get to my second question which is the perception of Apple in Asia because it's viewed more like a luxury brand than a consumer electronics company so I was looking at the data from Ben Beharin and it looks as if in the smartphone sales, it has exceeded Samsung because it's declining, but it's also coming closer and closer to Xiaomi's market share. So the question mark for me at the moment is that with the watch as well, it's moving towards a, a different kind of business model. It's going into what I call lux the luxury market, which is pioneered by the LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Mohi Hennessy Group. I know you had some thoughts on the whole luxury market so i thought maybe we should just have a conversation about talking about apple's ability to maintain this age against even the new up-and-coming chinese oem makers well first let me just try to push back on the luxury brand or the luxury philosophy because here's the thing luxury is a construct an idea that is very much a modern invention and it's an invention of a few marketers it's not a luxury is not a job to be done to use my language mm -hmm. there is no one who says i need more luxury Correct. how much did you get last week did you, did you get a lot of luxury or are you sort of like I or no, no one yeah. wakes up and says i need more luxury in my life what you need to think about is more like luxury is a, an overarching term that's in, not specific enough is like prestige so people struggle with it because it actually now it has outlived its usefulness so if you listen to theories about the market theorists like for example Scott Galway at NYU Stern and he uses much more the word prestige because he's trying to get closer to the job to be done what is it that these products allow the the buyer to to achieve with with the product and a lot of people you need to break down the the idea I, I talked to Bob Mosa who's kind of the the innovator on on jobs to be done theory and, and he also when I, when I asked him well, what do you think about this luxury you know Apple getting into luxury he said luxury is nonsense there's no such thing a lot of people you when you when you propose to them that the, the product is luxurious or or is a luxury product they actually become very defensive and they're like "Ooh, ugh, I, don't, I don't know if I want that is that that's not really what I am you know I'm not I don't want to be representing myself to the world as, as a snob so luxury many has many negative connotations as well so let's remove that word altogether and ask specifically what does a Louis Vuitton bag get hired to do? Mm. What does a, a $30,000 Rolex get hired to do? Or what does a $200,000 Patek Philippe watch get hired to do? And, and so people, when they make that purchase decision, they say, I can fit this into my life and this will do this for me. That's how it works. And so many times bags and, and objects of that level are actually gifts. They're gifts and not actually purchased by the user. They might even be considered gifts to oneself. So they're a reward system. Maybe there are things like, so a lot of, I've heard this about Chinese, particularly Chinese women, 
that they're willing to have make many, many, many sacrifices in life on a very strict budget and diet, and they never uh, buy anything other than noodles, and then they pay $8,000 for Louis Vuitton. Why would you do that? I mean, so what are they accomplishing? Also, there are similar stories told about, you know, this is not about a particular group, but there are similar stories told in Japan. Uh, in Japan, for example, I'll give you another one. Diamonds are purchased by women for themselves. In Western markets, diamonds are purchased by men for women. In the Middle East, you know, handbags are purchased by men for women as well. So there's not usually, a, uh, you know, that, that sort of behavior. Then you have men buying watches for themselves. Very expensive watches. It used to be different. Now mostly, you know, if you open a... I was I told this story. I was in Heathrow Airport in London, and I, I was in the lounge, British Airways lounge, usually a place where people, you know, have a lot of money. Uh, and they have magazines laid out. And one of the magazines was Gentleman Motor Cars or something like that. It was about classic luxury or classic cars so all these old you know Bentleys and what have you well I'm looking at it and because I was going to take the magazine for my son who loves cars and I was going to look through it and and I'm looking through it and yet the articles are about some antique cars but the, all the ads are for watches. There were no cars being sold because these were, you know, unless they were an auction, these cars were not available through retail purchase. So the only advertising in this whole magazine about luxury antique motors is about watches. So I said, oh, I see now. I understand what these watches are hired to do. They're hired for the person who actually likes these kinds of vehicles and who has this passion and who therefore has this much money and who therefore is usually resident in this part of Europe, etc., etc. And these these men, typically 99.9% sure it's men, are buying these watches for themselves. And because they're all masculine watches, none of those looked like they were feminine or, you know, they would give them as a gift. So then again, you have a reward system. So people who are of a certain age, who have a certain income, are, are rewarding themselves with this very, very, very expensive masculine watch. Fine. So, you know, you have to understand the job. Does that mean, you, it, then you, you call those luxury watches, you also call the cars luxury cars, and you, you, you call cosmetics luxury. They're completely different jobs to be done. You have to study each one individually. And so, when Apple launches a product like the watch, and they make a version that's very expensive, does that mean that they're a Louis Vuitton? No. It means that they understood that they have to make a computer that fits on the wrist. And they, when they decided that they want to make a computer that fits on the wrist, they had to understand why people buy things that go on wrists. And they decided, determined that some people are willing to pay a huge amount of money on offer objects on the wrist that have no functional value whatsoever. These are the people who will buy the $30,000 watches. And they decided, well, if they're buying watches at $30,000, let's give them something worth buying at that price level. And that's why they make a gold watch, not because they want to be Louis Vuitton not because they want to be a luxury company. It's because they have a job in mind, they have a product to make that sounds something logical, that makes sense to them, that makes sense to the evolution of computing, and therefore has to be purchased in a certain context, and so they have to put it out as gold as well. Yeah. That's the way that is built. So here lies the dilemma, right? You talk about disruption from a new market disruption because you're building this computer on your risk and you have to build it in such a way that the people who wants to buy the $30,000 watch will pay for that $30,000 watch. Isn't that a kind of an indirect adjacent attack into that category that which Louis Vuitton is in then? It's accidental. That's what I'm saying is that yeah. Louis Vuitton also understood the buyer of its 
handbags or the buyer right. of its luxury products. But in its, it, so it solves that job for the for the buyer, mm -hmm. and the buyer's happy. And then Apple comes in and says, "Oh, we have this really cute computer, but in order for us to sell, we have to put it inside of a box that has a certain quality to it and a certain pricing on it, and so mm -hmm. on. And therefore, we we are going to sell our computer in a in a package that solves." A luxury, what is quote unquote luxury, a job to be done, a reward system for people who have sufficient income. Well, then we are competing to some degree. But is there ever a situation? Here's where real competition, really how it works. Is there a real situation where a person decides, I sh should I get an Apple Watch or should I get a, a, a you know an equivalent priced? handbag. Yeah. I don't think that's how people think. They're not actually substitutable for one another. Usually competition happens when you actually buy one thing and as a result not buy another thing. That means that if you can buy both then there's no competition. So there's this question. So what is the, the share that you're fighting for? Your share for wallet? Well a lot of these folks have so much income that there's there's not really the disposable income is not restricted so that you know one fits and one doesn't the question is are if they go to a wedding let me put it this way this is another form of a, a competitive analysis they're going to a wedding in dubai and and they thinking what shall i get the bride what shall i get the groom as a gift the go-to answer might be rolex and, and louis vuitton now if the apple watching gold is available and you know that the bride might be a fan of apple then you say i know what she wants i'm going to get the seventeen thousand dollar gold rosé apple watch I know she's going to be thrilled because she's more, you know, interested in new things and not so much interested in Rolex anymore. Well, that that's fine. That means they took a sale away from Rolex. But in general, it's not that they stepped in and said we want to take the money the money away from Rolex. They stepped in because they want to make a a computer. There was a lady. I, I wish I remember her name. And she was, I think, an editor of Vogue or a fashion magazine. And and she was interviewing Johnny Ive and uh, what's the new designer? Mark, uh, Mark Lawson. Mark, yeah. Uh, so she was saying, boy, you guys are so charming. They're, you're like pussycats, but we're so scared of you here in, in this industry that you've come to, to destroy us. And, you know, Johnny said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, we're not here to trying to take anything away from anybody. We just want to make good, fun things, you know, or, or something to that effect. That's their logic. And it might be when I first heard about the watch, I said, apparel is next in fact even right before then i was sort of like a, a, a sort of first thinking about this and i said you know if you, the, the thing that made that apparel apparel is everything you wear so shoes clothes and so on accessories it's next in the sense that it's going to get injected with software and when that happens the companies that make the software will control that industry. It's happened to telecom, it's happened to entertainment, it's happened to, to computing. Is the companies that make the software came into these giant trillion dollar markets and completely took the profits from everybody else. It happened with Microsoft, it happened again with Apple and, and iTunes, and it happened again with Apple and the iPhone, although obviously many others as well followed. And so when you ask yourself, where can software go next? software could it go into television as soon as it does believe me it's going to be completely different can software go into automobiles again whoever brings software into automobiles will own that business so in the case of, of apparel yes it, whether it's a watch or whether it's a set pair of headphones or whether it's spare shoes if you put software in those products mm. 
those brands that exist today will 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 essentially be be either you know acquired or disappear and that's the problem that's how that's how the long term will run out but it's not because anyone came in there and said we want to kill them they came in and often by the way when this happens the market expands greatly because that what used to be an object that was priced at twenty dollars suddenly is two hundred dollars and it has software in it and it has a service associated to it so you pay every month and and so on and so on so you have a huge growth in general this is again about non-consumption and about new market creation so the software guys that come in actually expand the market by an order of magnitude so the the phone business got ten times more valuable when the smartphone was invented the computer business got a hundred times more valuable than when it was a mainframe business because of Microsoft and and, and on and on you, you can see the same pattern so when they go into apparel we're suddenly going to change the way we buy clothes we, what you know the objects we purchase and put on us and and they're going to be much more intelligent than they'll actually be but again they have to conform to the jobs that that apparel is hired to do which is not necessarily to stay warm it's to to signal some information about yourself but the and, and the reason by the way the reason that was triggered in my mind was because over the summer i read about certain clothing brands in the United States that were being completely crushed by the iPhone. Not the watch, but the phone. And these, these were brands like, oh, uh, Hollister or Abercrombie Fitch or something like these youth-oriented clothing stores and brands that were kids of a certain age, teenagers, would go to buy clothes for the new school year. So this was the summer, so it was the back-to-school, it's called, this back-to-school shopping season. And the back-to-school season was really bad for those teen stores. And, and the, the explanation by analysts in that industry, not in the computer industry but in, or phone industry, but in the clothing and retail and apparel industry, they said kids are no longer buying clothes to impress their friends in, in, in school. They're now buying iPhone to impress their friends in school. So they, the budget of... Okay, I'm going to spend three hundred dollars on back to school. It, it no longer goes to clothes. That's how that disappeared. So, again, it, it varies, and I'm kind of sort of arguing devil's advocate to some degree here because I, you know, I argued mm -hmm. that they're they're not in it to kill, but at the same time, death will happen, and it happens in a sort of very indirect way because the the behavior changes. Mm, and it's also in your words asymmetric. The Watchmakers yes. like the LVs, the Tech Hoyers, the Philip Party, they can't create a digital watch. I mean, yeah. they have the word Google way, Android, where, but that's not yeah, a good exactly. choice either. For, for, for it's like name. saying the entrant can become the incumbent, but the incumbent cannot retaliate by taking on the characteristic of the entrant. So the apples of the world, when they came into the phone business, they had a lot to learn. They didn't know how to market, how to distribute, how to optimize, how to do anything. So the, the incumbents laughed at them and said, Yo, you're not good, very good. You're, you're a terrible phone. But the, the, but they had what the incumbents didn't have is they had the great expertise of making software and they had great software on their phones which the incumbents have been trying for decades to do Nokia BlackBerry and others they had terrible software and so the software comes in and says yeah yeah I'm not a very good phone but I'm had great software by the way I'm going to make a new version next year and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that on and on so so what what they just iterate and they come in and they you know in a few years they're much better phones than anything else that the other guys had right maybe still some battery life is not ideal but again so you, you have so the way you put it to the watch guys is like switzerland they say oh come on these watch these watches these these are not uh, in any way aspirational they don't have wonderful you know qualities that we've been building a hundred for a hundred years as a watchmaker 
and and so they can never get to that our level of uh, luxury but at the same time they iterate fast and secondly so the first version may not look as as elegant but the next will be thinner and the one after that will be even thinner and twice as fast and then four times as fast and and it'll have much more capacity and much better battery life and everything else and while that's happening uh, they're going to actually improve on dimensions that the incumbents cannot ever ever hope to to match the the mechanical watches can never become as good as uh, at software whereas the software guys can pretty much take on 80% of the quality or or what it is that luxury uh, is defined as in that market now i would say that there are a few very very high end watches which will not uh, probably ever be disrupted because they're actually bought like somebody, something at $200,000. That person who's buying that watch is not interested at all in the functionality. So they're, they're, I still think that they'll be there. And same, I think, will happen with cars at some point. You know, they'll still be Ferrari, even if we have lots of Google or Apple cars. Here's the producer's note. The second part of the interview with Horace Dedu ends here. Yes, there is the last part of the interview to go. Please watch out for the last part in the next couple of days. Meanwhile, take care and best regards.